didn't work. Um, okay, so um, uh, <coughs> um, they were horrified at the regicide. They were horrified at the regicide, which is to say, the execution uh, of Charles the First. Um, and Milton wrote defenses of the English people. That is, he wrote um, long accounts in Latin for um, the, basically for all of Europe so that they could read it in this international language, of the um, <coughs> execu <coughs> excuse me, execution of Charles. And um, those who, and he was the victim of extraordinary polemic against that. Um, that is, he here's this person who's defending the indefensible is um, what the other um, debaters and polemicists all over Europe were saying about him. And things were, basically, you have to think of um, Sarah Palin types running every country in Europe. Um, that is to say, the level of invective and viciousness and um, refusal to try to find common ground um, in Europe at the time was extraordinary. I mean, it was a time of endless war and, and of endless vicious invective. So Milton, in the meantime, goes blind. And so immediately, all the people he's debating um, say, see, this is God's punishment on you for writing in defense of um, the, the execution. We don't call it regicide if we're on Milton's side. Oh, yeah, uh, true. We, we call it the execution of Charles the First. Um, if you've ever been to New Haven, by the way, um, which I wouldn't wish on you, but um, if you've ever been to New Haven, there's a park there. You know, Professor Burt loves New Haven. He's the one person I know who actually, I once asked him what his favorite city in the country was, and he said New Haven, if he could live anywhere. And he didn't mean so he could teach at Yale. He just meant he loved New Haven. Um, Really? You would live there over right, any the other place? Yale is pretty nice. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe like Yale campus is nice. Yes, I don't know. There's some <coughs> nice. You would live there? I don't know. My friend goes there. I think he's, he's a Yeah, nice yeah, but place. someone says you can live in San Francisco or New Haven. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. Is it? If they said like LA or New Haven, sorry. <coughs> I'm not hmm. Interesting. Okay. Sorry. Camden, New Jersey, or New Haven. I have to pick New Haven. But um, at any rate, there's a nice park right outside New Haven called West Rock Park, and in West Rock Park, and if you've been to New Haven, you know that the three major um, thoroughfares leading into the city are Dixwell, Whaley, and Whitney Avenues, and in West Rock Park, to which um, Whitney kind of leads, is a place called Judge's Cave. And Dixwell, Whaley, and Whitney were um, the three Puritans who decided in Judge's Cave that Charles would have to be beheaded in New Haven, Connecticut. And then they went back to England and they sold it to Parliament and he was beheaded. Um, so, um, but they were judges, so it wasn't a regicide, it was an execution, at least from their point of view. Mm. Um, this is one of those cases where it depends whose side you're on, what you think happened. But Milton defended it. He said it was the right thing to do, that Charles was a criminal, um, rogue, out of control king. There was no such thing as a divine right of kings anyhow. And um, <coughs> um, he then went blind. Um, the belief at the time was, and his belief was that he went blind because he was um, sleeping three hours a night and working till four every morning on government work. Does have a 
bad effect on the eye. Well, the recent theory is that it actually doesn't. It gives you eye strain, but it doesn't cause it doesn't cause blindness. Oh, blind, but consider the candlelight because you're. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's not. It's not. You don't feel good. Um, it doesn't <laughs> make your eyes feel good. Um, on the other hand, you guys. Well, maybe not for this class, but I just read a statistic that since 1980, I guess, the amount of outside of class work that students at colleges and universities do when you control for being at the same colleges and universities, um, places like Brandeis, has gone down from 24 hours a week to 14 hours a week. So you guys are doing like 10 less hours of work on average a week than mm -hmm. we did. And boy, we didn't work hard. Um, <laughs> I mean, we really didn't. Um, so this class was partly an attempt to correct that imbalance. <laughs> Just a little bit, an attempt to correct that imbalance. <laughs> um, but I'm just, you know, just mentioning. Um, so, uh, so what? No pressure or anything. Well, you probably worked really hard the last couple of weeks getting going from like 12 pages to <laughs> however many pages you handed uh, in yesterday. 20, 22 to, to, to where right to 70, but yeah. Yeah, all right. So, yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, the decision Bush versus Gore, which is 150 pages, something long, was written over a weekend. Um, the decision that gave us the lovely world we now live in. Um, See, that's what happens when you pull all-nighters. <laughs> you get the Bush administration. You, get... you didn't? Nope, not a single one. I'm except for citations on the like two nights ago. I was just fixing up the notes. You're up all night doing citations. Well, don't you have EndNote? No one has EndNote. You're the only person. You and John Bird have EndNote. I have EndNote. Do you really? Um, okay, but kind of procrastinating into the night and then falling asleep and waking up on my citation, my computer, putting it all together. But besides that, not one. That sounds really terrible, actually. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing worse than waking up to have to finish the bibliography yeah. that you haven't done. Cool. <laughs> it's nothing worse. It so bad. <clears throat> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> all right. Bibliography is insane at the end of any law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Balrog of all academia. <laughs> A friend of mine put as a footnote in a book, or as actually in the bibliography of a book he wrote, I think he footnoted this. He footnoted the Journal of Very Large Animals, which doesn't exist. Um, but he just he was just so punch drunk <laughs> that he just put it in for no reason, and no one caught it. So <laughs> I love that. The Journal of Very Large Animals. You know, we now call them charismatic megafauna. There's actually a technical name. For very large animals and, and megafauna. Well, it's the role they play in ecology. So if you say you basically the megafauna as yeah. opposed to the charismatic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Charismatic, I get. Most animals are more charismatic than many humans I know. But no, no. But the idea of charismatic, it's a, it's an ecology and conservationist idea. Oh. That what you want to do is it's you want to find charismatic megafauna. So, you know, if you say, well, the snail, we, we can't build this dam that will give hundreds of thousands of people jobs and power because of the snail darter. But if you say the polar bears will all go extinct, polar bears are charismatic megafauna. And suddenly people are saying, well, we can't do that to the poor polar bears, whereas doing it to the poor snail darters, no one cares. That's just um, another term for sexy carnival. Yes. 
Well, not necessarily carnivore. I think they're they're vegetarian charismatic megafauna. Giraffes, Giraffes are charismatic yeah. megafauna. And they're all in the Garden of Eden, where there was no meat eating. That's true. Whereas by the time you get to the Philistines and to Samson, hey, we've circled back. Um, oh, I looked up Dagon. Yes, what did you find? Because I, I knew that it was, I said it, he kept falling yeah, over. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did. I didn't make it up. Yeah. It's when they, uh, the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. And then they bring it in and put it at the Temple of Dagon, and he keeps falling over. And yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Put him back yeah. up. And he falls over again, and his like hands break off or something. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I'm like, get the ark out of here. Yeah. Because yeah, just it. get the ark out of here. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, what you should say to your friends from now on. Um, yeah, no, no, I did remember. And that's in Judges, right? No, it's in it, Samuel. In Samuel. Samuel. Okay, yeah. I can't remember if it's first or second. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's the God that they're attacking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I do remember that. I did, I, um, although I wasn't remembering yesterday, I didn't know. Yeah, I wasn't giving a very good picture. description of, yeah. you know, the one that falls over yeah, again yeah, and yeah. again. Yeah, so, yeah no, one. I was thinking of certain people I went to college with. Um, <laughs> Every Friday night, they fall over. Well, it's because they'd worked 24 hours, plus gone to classes the week before. I'm sure that's it. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting what you said about eye strain not being a factor of blindness, because <laughs> what... What? Yeah, go on. I'm glad we've gotten back to Samson. <laughs> <laughs> what is a factor for blindness is having your eyes gouged out. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Note to self. That will do yeah. it. Yeah. I always thought it was just a slight strain. I don't know. Oh, God. I always, every time I read that story of how Braille became Braille, oh, it's so horrible. <laughs> yeah, he, he like his father was a shoemaker, so he had an all lying around, and this little boy just took it and did things. Oh, never oh. mind. <laughs> to his own eyes? Yeah. Because he was crazy? What? No, he was too. <gasps> oh, but he was also crazy. <laughs> no, because you have instincts Shock. against that. Yeah, no, no, no but two-year-olds won't do that to themselves. I don't know, but apparently he injured his eyes with an awl. Both of them? Yeah. That seems that like, seems like oh, dumb. Let's see if it works on the other one. <laughs> that wasn't right. Let me try again. <laughs> I think it might have been like, who knows what he did with it. I don't think he did that, but I think he might have done, done this or something. Oh, Braille, well, the Samson. man himself, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, Samson. So he used the all to produce Braille. Yes. So Samson. <laughs> that's what I like about it. I like yes. the way <laughs> Thank Samson you, Emily. picks up the connection yes. that yeah. Milton does in... in the 16th sonnet about how um, he's worried that his blindness will therefore sort of right. render him useless to mm -hmm. God and that he's been given this gift, he destroyed it of his own merit and that's sort of like logic that he displays and cool. can I still be useful and that concern. Yeah. That's what I like about it. Okay, good. <laughs> so um, it's actually, let's look at um, the sonnet because it's, it's worth, it brings up a lot of stuff, especially that we've been um, looking at as well in Paradise Regained and to some extent in... Um, in uh, thinking about how temptation works. This is page 81. Um, the, how did that happen? Oh, pages in between. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The, um, there are people who think that he wrote Samson before he went blind. Um, that is, there's a huge debate about this poem as to whether it was written. It was published when he died. Um, it was published in the last, essentially the last volume of poems that he put together. After Paradise Regained, right? After but Paradise Regained. But that's an addendum that made people think that it was published, it was written before. Yeah. Um, or there's some mention that he might have been working on Samson before. But it was published the year he died. Um, and it certainly appears as his last work, or his last poetic work. Um, 
he also published um, a book of logic and a book of English history that um, only crazy people read. Um, I mean crazy because they're writing dissertations on Milton and reading that, and it makes them crazy. Um, that's what happened to me. Um, but the, uh, sorry? Explain the lie. Yeah. Um, but the debate is whether he was actually blind when he wrote Samson or not. And to me, it seems just untenable to imagine that <laughs> the obsession with blindness in that poem isn't autobiographical. Mm. Um, but some people think you're misled by the fact that he himself was blind into thinking um, that he must have written this after he was blind, and it's just a strange coincidence. Um, the argument against it being... Um, a late poem, one of the arguments against it is that it rhymes, and he, in the note to Paradise Lost, he says um, he's giving up rhyme. Mm. Um, and it rhymes kind of in the irregular but nevertheless highly noticeable way that Lycidas rhymes. That is, there isn't a regular rhyme scheme, but it will go in and out of rhyming. Um, and that feels stylistically earlier to some people, but on the other hand, you could say it's it's a different kind of poem, it's a tragedy. He's producing a certain kind of form, especially in choral odes, that he has to find an English equivalent of to the Greek. Um, at any rate, I think it's a late poem. I think that Milton is blind when he writes it. You know, when you have dark, dark, dark amid the blaze of noon, um, it's very hard not to see that as Milton's own lament. Yeah. Also, actually, um, I was noticing as I was reading it uh, on page 714, um, the, the chorus uh, you know, mentions inward eyes illuminated, mm -hmm. which actually is really reminiscent from a line from Paradise. Yes. Mm -hmm. inward, yeah, where he's talking about the light shining inward because yeah. his eyes are closed off. Yeah, just, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't see how people can... I mean, the... Yeah. yeah. The beauty and the, the pathos of the way he describes... The almost terrible hopelessness of blindness. It, it, how it, it would be terribly ironic for him to have written that and then become blind. Yeah, yeah. No, I. Yeah, it would it's be ridiculous. It, yeah, in a way, you have to decide who's the interesting poet, Milton or God. Um, that is, <laughs> it would be really interesting if God did this to Milton um, after Milton wrote about blindness so well. But it seems more likely. Um, from a sublunary perspective like our own, that it was Milton who <laughs> did this rather than God. Um, but at any rate, yeah, look at Sonnet 16, just, just so you see um, an issue that comes up in Milton. When I consider how my light is spent ere half my days in this dark world and wide. Um, half my days meaning what? Before half his life. Yeah, so how old? What, what is conventionally half your life? 17, four score and seven, four score and ten. What? Three score and ten. Yeah, not, 17, yeah. four score and ten would be nice. I know, 35. Yeah, um, in the middle of the journey of my life, I am quoting Nel Mezzo oh. del Camino de Nostra Vita. What? Is that Inferno? Yeah, yeah. first line of Inferno. Mm. Um, Nel Mezzo del Camino de Nostra Vita, in the middle of the journey of our life. Um, and that's the year 1300 when Dante is 35. Um, so the point is that's conventionally um, you see yourself as 
as going onto the back nine when you're 35. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm three years past it now. Jeez. Um, <laughs> it's going to happen to me soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. <laughs> God, you know, when I first taught, I, I had undergrad seniors who were older than I was. Oh, well. When I consider how my light is spent here half my days in this... <laughs> Why are you laughing? You had... While you were teaching, you had undergraduate seniors who were younger than you. No, older. Oh. No, that's... No, that's what you meant. That's what you meant. What? I had undergraduate seniors. I mean, yeah, older. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's just... They'd taken a couple years off. Yeah. Yeah. It's still interesting, though. Yeah. No, they were... They corrected me a lot. <laughs> they would come to me after class and they'd say, you know, I think what you did yesterday, that just didn't work. Um, <laughs> I've taken a lot of classes. <laughs> Three of the happiest years of my life were sophomore year. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I was a TA. Like even, even, just, okay. So you've never like complained to a TA about their style? Actually, no. Has anyone? Yeah. Yes. Have you been complained to? <laughs> no, I just, I'm just a grader. I'm not even yeah. a TA. Yeah. And I have, to... have you been complained to? About... Oh, my God, yeah. About was... yourself? No. She, yeah, well, she didn't bother to do it to me. She was just like, I don't understand why I got such low grade. And apparently I'm, I'm, I'm totally vindictive and terrible. And she can't write. This is the girl I gave an F to. Well, I can see why she might complain about her brain. You know, the one who wrote about how she hates Jane uh -huh. Austen in the Jane Austen class. Dreadful. So she had this long diatribe, and I'm like, oh, child, I'm trying to help you here. So the interesting thing about Jane Austen is that her first name begins with a J, her last name ends with an N, and there's a T in the middle of her last name. Well, I just like John Milton. So. <laughs> Poem. Really? Yeah. So why don't you read it? Read yeah, it aloud. It's one of my favorites. Go for it. Okay. It's an amazing poem. Um, when I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, this God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask, but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding seat in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Great. How come you like it so much? I, I don't know. I kind of lit upon it uh, my freshman year of college and decided to memorize it then. But I think just that the idea of that last line that says they also serve who only stand and wait is so poignant mm -hmm. um, because he's talking that feeling of uselessness um, and then when he gets to the end that actually that sort of stillness and inaction is still a form of service mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's really a beautiful way to capture that mm -hmm. good um, can you think of a line in Paradise Regained that echoes this 
uh, when Christ says, I don't know the time, and you don't have to know the time either, and right now I'm content to just wait. Okay, um, good. And um, what about standing in Paradise Regained? Uh, that moment when uh, Christ is sat on the top there and Satan's so annoyed that he doesn't bother, he falls. Yeah, and do you remember the line? Mm. Standing, he's something about falling and standing. Yeah. Yes. No, you're right. <laughs> Sorry. You're... No, no, you're <laughs> at exactly the right place. Exactly. Uh, I have a line in uh, <clears throat> Tennyson's uh, Cronus where he says that, I don't remember exactly, but it talks about how the gods don't need their gifts. Yeah. So the first line of Paradise Regained Book 4 is perplexed and troubled at his bad success, the tempter stood, and then it's picked up in that little moment when he falls off the cliff. Yeah. Um, uh, um, Tempt not the Lord thy God, he said, and stood, 561. Yes, there it is. To whom thus Jesus also <coughs> is written, Tempt not the Lord thy God, he said, and stood. Um, so, and that's a very, that's one of the most famous lines in Paradise. And then Regained. the next line ends with fell. Yeah. Um, so, so what um, Satan says is stand up and then jump because you can't possibly stay here. There stand at uh, line five fifty one. Satan adds uh, in scorn. There stand if thou wilt stand. To stand upright will ask thee skill. I to thy father's house have brought thee and highest placed. Highest is best. Now show thy progeny, if not to stand, cast thyself down safely, if son of God, for it is written, he will give command concerning thee to his angels, in their hands they shall uplift thee, lest at any time thou chance to dash thy foot against the stone. So the idea is that he's putting him at a place which is going to be too terrifying to stand up straight, um, and also too unstable, that is at the, at the very top of a pinnacle, um, where there's no place. Um, and Jesus simply replies, also it is written, tempt not thy, the Lord thy God, he said, and stood. So he just stands. Um, he doesn't fall. He doesn't jump. He doesn't give himself, put himself in the hands of the angels. He just stands. Um, what Satan has also said is, here you are in your father's house. Um, anyone remember the last line of Paradise Regained? He went back to his father's house. No. His mother's house. His mother's house. Mm. Yeah, that's important. Mm. That um, The point is he's human. Mm. Um, his father isn't what's counting. It's his mother that's counting on earth. Um, he is a, as C.S. Lewis would call him, a, um, no, wouldn't call him because it's always daughters of Eve, sons of Adam and daughters mm. of Eve, but he's a son of Eve. Mm. Um, and, okay. Um, so mm. the mm. idea then is patience. He also talks about this in Paradise Lost, the truer fortitude of patience left unsung um, when he's thinking about all the, all the topics, this is the invocation of Book Nine. All the top, well, you can do it, right? Do you remember? Book Nine? Yeah. Oh, no, you don't have to do it. I can, I can, <coughs> I can do that. No, 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 don't. No more of the topics. Yeah, 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 but just the part where he's going through um, the possible topics of poems. He says, um, since first this, okay, do that part. I have to get that. No, no, okay, let's just look at it then. Um, so at the beginning of book nine, which would be uh, around page 523, or go to page 524, um, line 25. Um, the muse dictates to me slumbering or inspires easy my unpremeditated verse. 
Since first this subject for heroic song pleased me, long choosing and beginning late, not sedulous by nature to indict wars, hitherto the only argument heroic theme. So up until now, all heroic poems were about wars. But that's not the kind of thing I was interested in writing. Sedulous there means um, hardworking, zealous. Not sed well, hardworking more than zealous. Not sedulous by nature to indict wars. Hitherto, the only argument heroic deemed, chief mastery, it was deemed the chief mastery to dissect with long and tedious havoc, fabled knights in battles feigned, um, here he'd be talking about the Iliad, the better fortitude of patience and heroic martyrdom unsung. So um, no one has sung about patience and heroic martyrdom. That hasn't been the subject for heroic song. Um, but you see that he's interested in this quality of patience. You see it in the lady who is paralyzed, um, but takes it, um, no matter what Comus tries to do to her. Um, you see it in Samson, who is patient despite everything the chorus and his father say. They say, okay, look, just give it up, um, and you'll be released, and you'll be able to live out your life obscurely. Um, that, again, is something that, in a sense, Milton was offered after the uh, restoration of Charles II. Um, that is, now he's blind and threatened with imprisonment or even death, um, but Andrew Marvell intervenes for him. Um, and the question is, how... Um, obscure how self-effacing should Milton be after the failure of the English Revolution? And the answer is he writes Paradise Lost, which is not exactly an act of self-effacement. Um, and um, he also writes, presumably also writes Samson, um, which is again about how the <coughs> hero of a commonwealth um, loses, um, is destroyed by tyranny and by those who go after false gods. Um, if you say, see it as allegorical of what happens after the Restoration, um, the Philistines would be those who support Charles II. Um, but patience and fortitude, um, that I don't know if they actually get that from uh, Paradise Lost. You know those are the names of the two lions outside the New York Public Library? Um, are patience and fortitude. I don't know. Um, who did? <laughs> no, I, just said I think it was Jane Austen. Um, but um, the, um, the idea in Paradise Regained and the idea in Samson is one of patience. And <clears throat> you already get that in They Also Serve Who Only Stand and Wait. Um, it's also worth noticing in that sonnet, I mean, Milton's, Milton's practice as a sonneteer is quite amazing. His sonnets, um, his great sonnets, he didn't write that many, um, but those that are really great um, are formally um, innovative and extraordinary. And one way that you can see this is that it's actually, if you look at They Also Serve Who Only Stand and Wait, um, I'll just read it again. So just listen. Don't, don't look on, but listen. Close book. Close. Close. It, Okay. When I consider how my light is spent ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent. Okay, let's start, let's stop there. What does bent rhyme with? Spent. And hide? Hide. 
right, wide, very obvious. Though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor? Light denied, I fondly ask, fondly ask, but patience to prevent. So prevent is rhyming with spent and um, bent. And do you remember what else? Present. 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 And what about chide is rhyming with wide and hide. And what else? Denied. Denied. Good. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. Okay, uh, rest rhymes with? Best. best. How about speed? How about need? need? Okay, so, but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's works or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. What does wait rhyme with? State. Yeah. Do you know the poem by heart? Yeah. Yeah. If you know the poem by heart, you know it rhymes with state. But Milton actually makes it sound like it rhymes with nothing. Um, even though the rhyme scheme is perfectly fine, he so manages enjambment that it's really hard to hear that rhyme. If you write rhymed poetry... Um, you have a choice as to whether to make the rhyme um, obvious or unobvious. Um, those of you who remember English 11 uh, will remember that in Browning's uh, My Last Duchess, <coughs> or Victorian poetry in Browning's My Last Duchess, um, most people don't realize that that poem is written in couplets. Most people don't even realize that poem is, that, that poem rhymes. And yet it's about 50 lines long in couplets that's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as though she were alive. It's almost all enjammed. Yeah, so it's all enjammed. <clears throat> so enjambment affects our capacity to hear rhyme. And what Milton is doing here is he's making, making his own complaint highly rhymed. You can really hear the beat, beat, beat of the complaint. A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. And then patience replies with a kind of smoothness where the rhyme is still there and it's just, but it's touched on so lightly. It's just where it should be. But without any insistence of, now I fulfilled my task of rhyming. Now I fulfilled my task of rhyming. It's just all there. And so you get a line like, they also serve who only stand and wait. And yeah, it rhymes, but it also feels like a standalone, like a non-rhymed line that's just telling you the truth. And so patience is, is demonstrating the truthfulness of what it says by not having to work at rhyming. And so the, the sonnet kind of splits into the first half does really hard work to rhyme, mm -hmm. Spencerian work to rhyme. And the second half is just ap has absolute facility and fluidity. And it rhymes just because it rhymes. Um, and so tonally, you can feel the difference between Milton's call and patience response to that call. Um, so patience there is something like, yeah, everything is happening. Thousands that is bidding speed or post or land and sea without rest. Thousands that is bidding seed, speed, excuse me, um, and post or land and, and ocean without rest. That's a little bit like what Adam asks about all the stars 
speeding around the earth. What's going on here? But the point is it's very easy for God. Either way, it's very easy. The only thing you have to do is be patient. The only thing you have to do is do what God says. You don't have to worry about um, taking matters into your own hand. So that's what the son does in Paradise Regained. He stands. That's all you have to do is stand. Um, as the Maximum Medical School goes, don't just do something. Stand there. Um, one of the most important things that a young physician can learn, they say. Um, don't just do something. Stand there. Figure out what's going on before you intervene too strongly. Um, that's, that's Obama's view. Don't just do something. Stand there. Um, depending on how you read it, you can emphasize the stand or the way yeah. too, which is kind of interesting right. how that affects. And as you say, it's like a natural cesura at the end of the line. Nice. Nicely put. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. So the son waits and Samson waits. And that's what he's doing in those poems. Um, it, let's look. We actually only have a little while, but it's but, you know it, it, it's it's worth talking about Samson. However little uh, we talk about it, let's look at the very beginning of Samson. So the important thing to recall about Samson is what Milton says in um, the preface, which is that the poem is not intended for the stage. Um, he says. Um, um, this is on page um, 671. Yeah. Um, um, this is actually the, the bottom of the uh, top paragraph, not the whole paragraph, but just the very top of page 672. <coughs> Division into act and scene, referring chiefly to the stage, to which this work was never intended is here omitted. It suffices if the whole drama be found not produced beyond the fifth act. So what he basically says is this was never meant for the stage. If you really were going to put this on the stage, just divide it into no more than five acts. Um, but it's not intended for the stage. It's intended for reading. Um, so here you have a blind dramatist who is producing a play which, of course, is therefore intended for reading rather than for seeing. It's almost as if he doesn't want to miss out on the production of the play, so it's the only way he can not experience what he wrote. Right, good, good. Um, ben? It's just also interesting that um, you know, even, even though there, it's not intended for the stage, he, he sort of maintains and submits himself to the requirements of the stage. You know, and, and in particular, I mean, to tragedies. You know, the actual most, well, like, you know, the, the biggest event um, in this play is not represented on a stage. Yes. Yeah, you know, <coughs> specifically how, how moments like this are treated. But, I mean, you know, he, he could have just as easily, I mean, if it has no intention of ever being produced, showed um, the moment. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of have problem with that, actually. But. Well, yeah, Sean. Oh. Um, what he's following, what he's doing is following the rules of Greek yeah. tragedy. I mean, I, yeah, no, I, I know he's following the rules of Greek tragedy, but I, I want him to not do it. <laughs> <laughs> do you have more than three persons in the stage at once? 
Um, so, well, okay, so Greek tra- there are various rules of Greek tragedy. Um, the main one that he's following, although I think he actually follows uh, the Sophoclean rule as well, but the main rule of Greek tragedy is that it happens in a single time and single place. That is, that you might wander into some public area, a square, a forum, a field, a graveyard, or something, but a place where you in the audience might just find yourself picnicking and you might eavesdrop on what now happens in the tragedy. Um, and that at least is supposed to be technically possible um, and kind of explains something that um, is otherwise very difficult to explain, which is why people um, are prey to tragic illusion. But the one thing you don't get in Greek tragedy is a missing fourth wall. Um, Greek tragedy does not give you an invisible fourth wall that we can somehow see through. So that idea of the invisible fourth wall, which is a standard idea in drama and film, um, you just don't get in Greek tragedy. Um, Where you are, it's always outdoors, and it's always in a public place where you might just see these people actually having the conversation that they're having. Fourth wall, doesn't that come around the last 60 years or whatnot? No, it's in Shakespeare. It's in any any play that takes place in a room. There's an invisible fourth wall. Even with the weird tongue-shaped stage, the ace. Yeah, hmm. thrust stage. Um, <laughs> yeah. You should see it. It's cute. Sam wanted to make a reboot it. So, <clears throat> the point then is that if you're there, the way you'd be there is just everything happens to happen right where you are, um, and you can't go from one scene to another. Um, or you can't go from one time to another because because then um, how would you as an audience member happen to do the the um, uh, transporters be beamed from one place to another and from one time to another? Um, Shakespearean tragedy and modern or Shakespearean drama and modern drama um, follows Dr. Johnson's um, dictum that anyone who believes that they're in Rome when they're sitting in a theater in London. Um, can also very easily believe that in the next scene they're in Alexandria, um, that it's actually not that hard. <laughs> Once you can think you're in one place that a tragedy is occurring, it's actually not that hard now to do the next step. As Johnson said, surely he who imagines this can imagine more. Um, if you really do imagine you're in Rome, then you'll have no problem imagining you're in Greece the next, in the next scene. But, but the Greek rules give Greek tragedy a certain austerity. And the austerity is that things, you discover things, but generally you don't see them. The violence tends to take place off stage. Yeah. Okay, I think I think I have a good reason now as to why it disappoints me. Um, so there, there is, I mean, there is something kind of inherently disappointing to a modern audience about Greek tragedies at the end. Uh, you know, just... Uh, We've sort of come to expect uh, momentous conclusions in some way, uh, and and the way it sort of smooths it over and and relates the events in you know posthumously, it, it just uh, it kind of takes something away from it to a modern audience. And to see it in Milton just feels wrong because I mean he's adhering to you know a standard tragedy, uh, but. But Milton isn't 
standard track. He's not standard anything. You know, I mean, you know, yeah. when when he writes a standard epic, it it doesn't really remotely resemble yeah. a standard epic. And to put himself to these constraints feels like it's Milton trying to not be Milton. Well, so a I think a lot of people would disagree with you, um, but one, but just just to to stay open minded for this to this. Um, a converse argument you could make is that Milton is really the only person in English who wrote a tragedy that feels like Greek tragedy. Um, lots of people have tried, and in French there are plenty of tragedies that feel like Greek tragedies, especially by Racine, um, to some extent by Corneille, but definitely by Racine. Um, and Corneille and Racine follow the Greek rules, and they really attempt to produce for a modern audience the feel of Greek tragedy. Um, one of the things that Emily is also pointing to is that um, there is a question of how many speaking parts there are on stage in a Greek tragedy. Um, and the general rule is that originally there was only one speaking part at a time um, and a chorus, but basically only one um, speaker. Um, then, which makes tragedy very close to monologue, um, then um, Aeschylus introduced a second speaker um, so that you would have um, conversation for the first time. And then Sophocles introduced a third speaker. And um, what that means is you never have more than a three-way conversation unless the chorus gets involved, but they usually only get involved as commentary. Um, the reason for this is, um, well, there are lots of reasons for it, but one was a kind of no reason, N-O-H reason, <coughs> which is that the tra tragedies were done in masks. And um, actors were not in one-to-one -one correspondence with characters. That is to say, you could have an actor playing Orestes at the beginning of um, the Libation Bearers, and then that same actor might play Electra while some other actor is playing Orestes. Um, there's a really interesting interchange of um, masks and the humans who are, who are playing um, those characters. And so the, the idea of method acting, where you just entirely inhabit the character who you are representing, is as alien from Greek tragedy as is imaginable. Um, the whole idea is that is really, it's much more like Bunraku, if you know what that is. That is Japanese puppet theater. Um, so the way Bunraku works, if you ever get a chance to see it, you should is that you have three puppeteers. One is a master, and he's actually, you can see his face, and he has two assistants who are hooded, so they're all in black. He's in black, but you can see his face. They're in black, and they're hooded. And they're moving these puppets that are about this size around on stage and, and speaking their lines for them. And as you start watching it, what happens for about the first three or four or five minutes is you're watching the puppeteers moving these pieces of wood um, and you're amazed by how um, graceful and perfect and martial artsy their movements are um, but after about three or four minutes they disappear and they're still there but you don't see them anymore um, because you're just watching the actual puppets interacting rather than the people who are holding them and moving them um, it's an amazing thing to see and um, so what happens is the puppets are, will, be, will sometimes be, be moved from hand to hand um, so that one puppeteer will do the puppet um, in, the, in, in the beginning of a scene 
but that puppet will move to another place and someone else will enter and so on. And another puppeteer will be moving that puppet, but it doesn't matter because you're only watching what the puppet is doing, not who's holding it. In Greek tragedy, you're only watching what the characters are doing. They're puppets in that sense, in the Bunraku <coughs> sense, that you're only watching what they're doing rather than <coughs> what those who are presenting them, like the puppeteers or like the actors, are doing. <coughs> and that gives you a really strong sense of austerity in Greek tragedy. That is that it's not the human beings that you're watching, the actual human beings that are on stage. Um, again, if you think about it, what is so amazing about modern theater, let's say um, post, you know, modern, I mean modern meaning early modern <coughs> and beyond. Theater is kind of reinvented in the West. Um, at the beginning, of, at the end of the medieval period or the beginning of the modern period. And what's amazing about modern theater is that you're looking at real people and everything that they do um, might, you're investing in them the way you invest in real people. Oh no, what if she forgets her lines? You know, oh no, what if he trips? Oh look, um, he's supposed to be dead but I can see him breathing. Um, oh wait, he's not supposed to be dead. I was supposed to see him breathing. But you're 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 judging actual human beings when you watch theater, and a good play will capitalize on that. That is to say, will make the fact that you're anxious about Laurence Olivier um, and how well he's doing the lines, and is he forgetting the lines, and so on, um, um, turn into anxiety about Romeo. Um, Lawrence Olivia was actually famous for this. That is that the first, um, he became a star when he did Romeo and Romeo and Juliet when he was about 23. Um, and the first night, he was utterly panned um, as a Romeo. And people said, you know, he was just tentative, tongue-tied. He forgot his lines. He was awkward. He was embarrassed. And then the next night, he played some other role. And suddenly, they realized, no, that was Romeo who was all those things, not Olivier. Um, the next day he did a commanding role in some other part, and then they went back to watch Romeo, and they said, holy cow, That's you know, great this, this is acting. <coughs> um, but the point is that you feel for the actor in theater. That's why live theater is so different from movies, is that you're feeling for the actor um, and not only the character. Not in Greek tragedy. In Greek tragedy, it's the masks, and the human beings don't, the, the characters do not get any of their emotional force from the humans who are playing them. Um, and that's one reason that reading is appropriate, or why Milton would want to write a Greek tragedy, because when you read a play, you're not thinking, oh, the poor person who's playing this role. It's just the words. Okay, I mean, we should end, but just look at how it begins. <coughs> um, and we should spend a minute on, is Samson a terrorist? A lot of people think he is. <coughs> the equivalent of a suicide bomber. A little onward, lend thy guiding hand. You can go if you have to, but a little onward, lend thy guiding hand. That's okay. <coughs> to these dark steps, a little further on. Who's he talking to? A little onward, lend thy guiding hand to these dark steps, a little further on. Who has the guiding hand? Yeah, he has a boy guiding him. Um, that boy will guide him to the pillars. It may be the same boy. It's not absolutely clear that it's the same boy. Um, and the reason it's not absolutely clear that it's the same boy is that you forget about the boy 
unless he's being talked to. So a little onward, lend thy guiding hand to these dark steps a little further on. For yonder bank hath choice of sun or shade. There I am wont to sit when any chance release me from my task of servile toil. Daily in the common prison else enjoin me. Were I a prisoner chain, scarce freely draw the air imprisoned also. Close and damp, unwholesome draft. But here I feel immense. By then, it turns into soliloquy. Mm. And the point is that the boy who's guiding him just kind of disappears like the puppet masters. And we get sheer soliloquy on Samson's part. Now, if you think of this as allegorical, since we started with allegory, let's end with allegory. Um, and you're reading this play. Whose guiding hand is it? God. Um, OK, in the actual act of reading, whose guiding hand is it? Okay, because they're taking it down. Nice. Um, so the boy can be a girl. That, ni nice idea. I also think very simply it's this. A little onward lend thy guiding hand to these dark steps a little further on. Yeah. Dark steps are meter. All we have here is language. For yonder bank hath choice of sun or shade. Um, black and white on the page. Yonder bank hath choice of sun or shade. And he's enlisting us to read what he has written. Mm. How we guide this poem, how this poem is guided, is by our reading of what he has written or said. Um, I think it's important because otherwise there's something really awful about the fact that he gets the boy to bring him to the pillars, essentially to bring him to the place where the boy will now be killed when he collapses the whole um, theater, as the um, Jobian escapee puts it. Um, the book of Job, so, so I mean, so the, so the possible, if, if you see, if you do do this on stage, it's going to look really awful when he says, um, uh, I mean, if you, if you, if you were to, to have this occurring sort of spotlit while the messenger describes what happens. You would see Samson saying to the boy, here, guide me to those pillars. And the boy would say, here you are. And he'd say, I have to rest now, which is how he begins by saying, I have to rest. Now he says, I have to rest. The boy is right there. And then he goes, bang, and the boy is killed. And that just seems wrong. But if the boy can be forgotten, because you're just reading it, so the boy is only kind of materializes and dematerializes in the story, then it's different. Um, the book of Job is the book where um, Job is tortured by Satan and um, under God's permission and, in fact, instructions. And um, the repeated line in the book of Job is that Job will be talking to someone and a messenger will come in and say, thy children were having dinner and suddenly there was an earthquake and... They all died, and their maidservants and their manservants, and I alone am escaped to tell thee. Um, it's what Melville picks up at the end of Moby Dick. Um, Ishmael alone escapes to tell the story of, well, it's a spoiler, but what happens <laughs> to all of those who go against, against the whale. Um, I alone am escaped to tell thee. Um, that's clearly what's, what um, Milton is doing with having uh, the messenger come in and say, I was far away, but I saw this general destruction. And then the chorus dances in the streets. Um, 
in a way that's very familiar to us these days. In fact, very familiar to us from last Sunday night, um, but familiar to us from September 11th, 2001 as well. Um, unseemly, this is what you were talking about then, unseemly celebration of bloodshed and violence. Um, it's a hard, it's really um, a hard work to think about um, without some anxiety, um, without being disturbed by. Um, much harder than Paradise Lost. I mean, I think Paradise Lost is an amazingly great poem. But Samson is disturbing um, and should be disturbing um, even now. And it's paradoxical as well because he, he scolds Delilah for saying exactly the same thing that he himself <coughs> does. He twice marries a Philistine woman because God has designed him to destroy the Philistines. Right. But when she says, I am a patriot, he says, well, the marriage bond was more than that. Yeah, right, exactly. You should have been loyal to me. Yeah. But where is his loyalty yeah. then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and she's <coughs> the one who um, tries to save him. That is, why does she come talk to him? Because she says she never thought that that she herself was lied to, that they said that they would not hurt him as much as they did. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if she's sheer evil, she would just stay away from him. Mm. She'd just be out drinking mm. and saying, ha-ha, we got Samson. Um, but she's not doing that. Um, there are dramatic reasons, which is you want a confrontation between them. But she does also. She wants to, she wants to justify herself to him. Um, again, you know, she's worth comparing and contrasting to Eve. And her scapegoating, the way he scapegoats her, is worth comparing and contrasting to the way Adam scapegoats mm. Eve. And whether Milton agrees with that act of scapegoating is something to see that he doesn't. After due consideration, he should come around to my idea. I agree. Um, because he says, what does he say? That, that, that he's very, very clear about the fact that he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. He says, yeah. what, um, impotent in mind, but strong in body. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right, you guys. Um, I look forward to your papers. Have a good summer. Um, those of you who are graduating, congratulations. And um, is this your very last class if you're graduating today? <coughs> All right, good. I don't know what's happening. Oh, you do? What? Yeah. Um, well, it's more like, I guess, a like, mini class slash mostly review session for an exam. For what? For an exam. Yeah. For what class? Oh, that class. Yeah, that 